20 today, I get a verse, and actually it's kind of half of a sentence, because it goes along with uh, verse 19 that Pastor Andrew preached on last week. Uh, If you don't have a Bible, there are some on the back table there. I'm going to be bouncing around actually quite a bit in uh, Ephesians and Romans and Genesis, um, and I, I don't have any slides, so if you want all the references, I'd be happy to uh, get them to you on the city or, or via email. Uh, but we're, we're going to be looking at the biblical concept of reconciliation today. Let me read Colossians 1.20. Actually, I'll start in verse 19. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And through him to reconcile to himself all things. There's a few things uh, we want to look at in terms of reconciliation One is, why is it necessary? Why is there a need? You know, what is reconciliation and why is there a need for it? Why is there a need that God would reconcile all things to himself through Christ? Two, I want to look at um, what does reconciliation entail? What's, What's the scope and nature of the reconciliation Paul's talking about here? And thirdly, how does God accomplish that? How does he accomplish that reconciliation? But before we dig in, let's, let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning through your word. I pray, Lord, that you would open the eyes of our hearts, that you would give us understanding, that you would transform us Uh, by your Holy Spirit, through your word, that we might grow in maturity in Christ and that we might more effectively advance your kingdom where you've placed us. In Jesus' name, amen. So first, let's talk about the need for reconciliation. We saw back in first in Colossians 1:16 that for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth visible and invisible whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities all things were created through him and for him all things were created in by and for Christ in fact, John, in John 1, it says that nothing has, that he made everything. Nothing has been made um, without his creative work. And we know from Genesis 1 that God created everything in its original state was good, was very good, in fact, he says in Genesis chapter 1. But we can look around us and see that things aren't probably how they were meant to be now. So why is that? Well, because Adam's sin. Because of Adam's sin, 
In fact, not only did sin bring death and corruption to us as human beings, it affected creation itself. In fact, the lordship of Christ, even though Christ is sovereign over his creation, his lordship has even been disrupted. And creation no longer bears the relationship to its creator that it was intended to have. Adam and Eve were created perfect in a perfect garden, in perfect harmony with God and each other and creation. But what happened? They rebelled. And in doing so, they threw the whole created order into chaos. As a result, again, it doesn't take much to look around and see that the universe is now characterized by alienation between God and man, between man and man, and even between man and nature. So as we talk about the need for reconciliation, let's, let's look at the need for reconciliation between God and man. Genesis chapter 3, the fall, right? Because of their sin, the God who once walked with Adam and Eve in the cool of the garden was now compelled to drive them from the garden. Their fellowship with God was broken. And because of Adam's sin... Because Adam is our father, we inherit that sin from him. We, too, are sinners. Romans 5.12 says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. I mean, Romans, Paul says in Romans 5.10, he even says, Apart from Christ, we're God's enemies. Uh, Joe read from Ephesians 2. Uh, Earlier in Ephesians 2, it has us as spiritually dead, children of wrath, separated from Christ. Ephesians 2.12 says, Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, And strangers to the covenants of the promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Our relationship with God has been broken. Our fellowship with Him has been damaged and is in need of reconciliation. So what about each other? What about man to man? Where's the need for reconciliation there? Well, because of that first sin, the relationship we have with each other has been broken, starting with Adam and Eve again. As part of the curse of sin, Genesis 3.16 tells us that there will be strife between husband and wife. It says in Genesis 3.16, to the woman, he said, God said, your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. Let me unpack that. In other words, the leadership role of the husband 
and the complementary relationship between husband and wife that were ordained before the fall now have been deeply damaged and distorted by sin. Husband and wife will both abandon their God-given roles before the fall, and we're going to be subject to our own selfish desires. God says Eve's going to rebel against her husband's leadership, and Adam is going to abdicate his original role of leading and guarding and caring for his wife, and he's going to replace it with his own sinful and distorted desire to rule over his wife. In Genesis 4, the sin of Adam and Eve and its effects are transmitted to their children. And out of envy and jealousy, Cain kills his brother Abel. And today, if we're honest, all we have to do to see a need for reconciliation between man and man is to take a look at our own marriages, our own relationships, and our families with coworkers. Look at the news. It doesn't take much to look around and see how Adam's sin has been transmitted to us and has distorted our relationships and brought disharmony. Even the relationship between man and nature has been broken. Creation itself suffers the effects of Adam's sin. Genesis 3, 17 through 18 says... God says to Adam, Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And then Paul describes uh, the plight of creation in Romans 8, 20-22. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. Natural disasters. Think about natural disasters like the fires raging in the western United States right now. Or think of the tornadoes that have devastated parts of the Midwest or the floods in the southeast. Earthquakes. All those things are a result of the fall. Not how God intended creation to be. Famine, disease, and even predation, animals eating other animals, Um, kind of the violence involved in feeding on other creatures in nature are effects of our broken relationship with the Creator. See, because of Adam's fall, the unity and harmony 
of the original creation has suffered a devastating rupture. The beautiful garden, the pristine beauty of Eden has been marred horribly. Disharmony now characterizes God's handiwork. And alienation, as I said earlier, now characterizes the universe. All of creation is mired in disruption morally and spiritually and physically. In other words, Adam's sin has had cosmic repercussions that require reconciliation. So let's take, uh, let's take a look now at what is, what is reconciliation Paul's talking about here in Colossians 1 entail? What, what's the scope? Well, you get an idea from the verse... Uh, from 120, it says, Paul says, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven. So all things in earth, in heaven, on earth or in heaven, all things. Well, before... Pastor Andrew and I were talking before the uh, service started. Uh, he recognized that I got I got one of the most actually most controversial verses in all of Scripture, believe it or not, and certainly in the New Testament, because maybe you can see if you think about it again. It says and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven. Um, many have interpreted this verse to promote the idea of universalism or universal salvation. And I'm going to talk about that a little bit here in a minute. But first, let's look at um, reconciliation as it pertains to us. I mean, most importantly for us is that we are reconciled to God. And actually, we'll get into that in just a minute, because first, I want to look at uh, the restoration of creation. So again, back in Genesis chapter 1, verse 31, we know that the original creation was perfect. It was untainted by sin. Genesis 1:31, And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And as we already saw in Romans 8, we see the promise of reconciliation extended to creation itself. That the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. The prophet Isaiah in chapters 65 and 66 and, in, and John in Revelation 21 and 22 both speak of a new heaven and a new earth. Not in the sense of completely new, but really more in the sense of renewed, restored to the order God intended, to the beauty God originally created creation in. 
and it will last for eternity this time. Okay, let's look at God's, uh, the restoration, the reconciliation between God and man. Notice in Colossians 1.20 that God is reconciling to himself all things. Paul isn't talking about like mutual concession after mutual hostility. It's not like uh, Paul is talking about a husband and wife making up after a fight. Like, you know, well, we both, you know, we both sinned against each other, and so let's be reconciled to one another. No, Paul says that God is reconciling to himself all things. He's speaking of a reconciliation that's manward, not Godward. That God is extending reconciliation to us, not mutually or the other way around. God has, God has never had the need to be reconciled to man. God has always loved us. Even after Adam and Eve rebelled in the garden, you remember the first thing that happened after Adam and Eve rebelled in the garden? God pursued them. He sought them. And the first thing he asked is, he lovingly asks, where are you? It's not like God didn't know where they were. But God pursued them and asked, where are you? If you look at Matthew chapter 23, Jesus exhibits this same love for his rebellious people in his lament over Jerusalem. He says in Matthew 23, 37, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often I would have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. See, reconciliation in Colossians 1, is the message of a loving God who in Jesus Christ came to seek and save the lost, us. Jesus didn't come so that God might love us, but because God loved us. I think Pastor Andrew referenced John 3.16 last week for God so loved the world and if you know something about how the apostle John defines how the how the word world is defined in John's gospel it's not just you know people it's that human system that is actively opposed in active rebellion against God so God so loved these rebellious people who reject him and don't want him that he gave his one and only son. 1 John 4.10 says, In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Paul uses another term here in Colossians 1.20 to describe reconciliation when he refers to making peace. making peace by the blood of his cross. 
He uses that term uh, in our reading for today in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 14 through 16. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, making so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And then one more verse, Romans 5.1. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We are reconciled with God through Jesus Christ. In short, reconciliation is the finished and whole work of God through Jesus by which we are brought from this place of alienation from God to peace with Him. It's His work that He does on our behalf in addition to nothing that we can do. There there are other terms that Scripture uses of God's gracious work in Christ, like redemption, justification, regeneration, and the word we came across in 1 John 4, propitiation. But reconciliation seems to be used as this overall term of Scripture, which encompasses all the other terms as part of what God has done through Christ to completely remove the barrier that separates us from Him, destroying sin and death and unrighteousness and satisfying God's holy requirements. It's, it's this work of reconciliation that, in a sense, sets God free to justify the believing sinner by faith in Christ, so that there is now peace with God. The change of relationship from hostility to harmony. Before we get to how Paul says God accomplishes this reconciliation, um, as I refer alluded to earlier, we need to take a look at this idea of all things, because Paul says all things here. So what does all mean in all things? All things, whether on earth or in heaven. So far, we've looked at the, the reconciliation of creation and those who, by faith in the finished work of Jesus on the cross, have been reconciled to God. But if all, if all things are encompassed in reconciliation, Paul speaks of, in what sense are unbelieving people, or for that matter, you know, the spiritual realm, unbelieving, wicked spirits, in what sense are they reconciled to God? God. 
For that matter, what about Satan himself? Because he would be included in that all things, right? Some have used this verse, as I said, to promote the idea of universal salvation. Some even that Satan himself could be reconciled to God or could be saved, so to speak, if he would only repent. Well, we know from the rest of Scripture that this can't be what Paul means. Scripture is clear in terms of us, in terms of individuals, that for reconciliation to be effective for any individual, one must trust in the work of reconciliation by repentance and faith. Romans 10, verses 9 through 10. Romans 10, verses 9 through 10 says, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. And in John chapter 1, verse 12, he says, But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. We also know that it's not anything that can be earned. We can't earn reconciliation with God through being a good person or doing good deeds. Titus 3.5 says, He saved us not because of righteous things we had done, but because of His mercy. And again in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is, not a res- this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. So clearly... Scripture is not teaching universal salvation of human beings. That reconciliation is something that is the free gift of God because of His mercy and His grace. And it's not something that we can earn. It's something that, and it's something that we must receive. So where does that leave the, the fallen angel category? Where, where do they... F- fit in here. Well, if you read any of the passages in Scripture regarding Satan and his demons and fallen angels, uh, they're consistently portrayed in Scripture as constantly, irrevocably hostile toward God, toward His kingdom, and with no hope of salvation in any sense of that term. Matthew 25 41 says, Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. And Revelation 20.10 says, And the devil who has deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur, where the beast and the false prophet were. 
and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. There is a place that is already reserved for spiritual dark forces. So, okay. So, unbelieving human beings won't be reconciled to God, won't be saved. Um, Dark spiritual forces will not be saved. So we still have to deal with, so what does Paul mean when he says all things? God's reconciling all things to himself. Well, reconcile as it pertains to these two groups has to do with subduing, bringing to nothing the enemies of God. Think of it in financial terms of reconciling an account. God's reconciliation of all things includes triumph and victory over those who are and ever will be his enemies. Sam Storms puts it this way. The demonic hosts and unbelieving humanity may be spoken of as encompassed by and participating in the reconciliation, not in the sense that they are ultimately saved, but insofar as they will be subjugated, pacified, and rendered incapable of any longer disrupting the harmony and beauty of God's creative handiwork. According to Scripture, all evil will be excluded from heaven, all wickedness wickedness banished from its boundaries, all unbelief confined in hell. That, the point is that peace can be achieved in one of two ways, either by the removal of hostility through grace or the pacification and subjugation of enemies through power and judgment. Look. We know that according to Philippians chapter 2, I think has even been one of our scripture passages in this sermon series, Philippians 2, 10 and 11, we know that ultimately all creation will bow the knee. All creation will bow the knee and confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Those who have been justified by faith in Jesus, will do it voluntarily, by grace. While unbelieving humans and spirits will do it by compulsion as part of their judgment. On that day, when every knee will bow, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord of the glory of God the Father. On that day, all things will finally be reconciled, and God's ultimate and final purpose will have been achieved. His grace and mercy will have been glorified by the salvation of His people, His holiness and justice will have been glorified by the condemnation of his enemies and heaven and earth 
will finally have been restored to their original divinely created and determined order. The universe will be placed once again under its head, Jesus Christ. I don't know about you, but I, I rejoice that I am reconciled to God today, but I look forward to that day. when everything will be put back the way God intended it. That's a beautiful picture. So now lastly, let's take a look at how does God accomplish this reconciliation? Well, let's look at the last part of Colossians 1.20. That reconciliation is accomplished by making peace by the blood of his cross. Through the work of Jesus Christ on the cross, God has brought his entire rebellious creation back under the rule of his sovereign power. I've been reading a, a few different commentaries as I've been studying Colossians 1 here. And I love the imagery that uh, one of the commentators, David Garland, uses whenever he talks about the cross and, and the work of Jesus on the cross. About this uh, part of Colossians 1.20, he says, The death of an obscure Jew on a seemingly God-forsaken hill in a backwater of the Roman Empire attracted no notice from historians of the era. But it was the event that reconciles heaven and earth. The grim reference to Christ's blood and cross brings us down from the lofty heights of preeminence and fullness to the squalid depths of human pain and suffering. These two words are combined to express cost and violence. Blood refers to death by violence. The cross refers to humility and shame. The head of the church is the one who was shamefully crucified. How does God accomplish the reconciliation of all things, whether in heaven or on earth. He does so by making peace through the blood of the cross of Jesus Christ. Now remember that one of the reasons Paul is writing to the Colossian church is because of the false teaching that's going on. And like the Colossians, we might be tempted by false teaching and the philosophies of the world that try to convince us that Jesus' work on the cross wasn't enough. That somehow we need to add special religious practices 
um, or gain some secret knowledge in order for us to be reconciled to God, to have peace with Him. But we learn from Colossians 1.20 that reconciliation is from God alone through Jesus Christ alone. That's it. And we know from Jesus' last words on the cross that it's a finished work. It's done. It was accomplished 2,000 years ago on that hill, on that cross. Jesus has accomplished all that needs to be done in order to provide salvation by the blood of His cross. It's on the cross that Jesus became our substitute and paid the penalty for our sin. Now, if you're here today and you have put your faith in the finished work of Jesus on the cross, rejoice. When you come to the table later, rejoice as you remember his broken body and his blood shed on your behalf to reconcile you to God so that you might have peace with him again. And through that peace, through that reconciliation, God has empowered you as his covenant people to live in peace, in real peace, in a hostile and dangerous world. He's empowered us to live for him through the blood of his cross. As I told you before, I love hymns. And as I thought about the Colossians uh, dealing with kind of these scary uh, spiritual forces that the false teachers are talking about and thinking about the peace we have now with God through the blood of Jesus that we don't need to fear. I I thought of, again, one of my favorite hymns uh, by Martin Luther, A Mighty Fortress is Our God, Um, the third verse. And though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear For God has willed his truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fell him. If you're here today and and you don't know Jesus, he invites you. I invite you to accept His finished work on the cross by the blood of His cross. Accept that today alone as your payment for sins, as His payment for your sins, and be reconciled to Him today. Scripture says that today is the day of salvation. All who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. Remember that one day, according to Philippians chapter 2, every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. My prayer for you today is that you will not do so out of compulsion, but because of His grace by the blood of His cross. Let's pray.
King Jesus, we rejoice today that you have reconciled all things, making peace by the blood of your cross. We rejoice that those of us who have trusted you, trusted your finished work on the cross, that we have been reconciled, that we are no longer your enemies, but we are your friends. Lord, I pray today that as we look forward to the day when ultimately all things will be subject under your feet, the day when ultimately enemies will be defeated and we will enjoy you in your perfect creation for all of eternity. Lord, may we rejoice as we look forward to that day and may we live every day in light of that. And Father, burden our hearts to share that joy, to share that message of reconciliation with those who don't yet know you, that they too might have peace with you. In Jesus' name, amen.